every night my grandmother would just go on and on about the importance of, you know, education, getting a licence. Again, she couldn't drive. I realised they were projections as well, things she couldn't do. Um, and economic autonomy. And she that exact framing, that language, but in Greek is what she described it as, economic independence. And till today, like they are essential, that's how I live my life. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit. The life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. In the movie Trading Places... Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy play a rich commodities broker and a homeless guy who swap places for a bet. Interviewing Patricia Cavellis feels a bit like that for me. I've been interviewed by Patricia more times than I can count. She's one of Australia's leading journalists, having worked at the Australian, the ABC, SBS and Sky TV. Patricia describes herself as being balanced on the basis that she's been criticised by both sides of politics. It's never seemed to me a very good test. After all, people on the left and right both dislike cholera. The reason that I admire her as a journalist is that she's wise, thoughtful and incisive. More interested in substance than flim-flam. But Patricia is also a fascinating person in her own right. She loves walking hates tardiness, and says that she rarely feels rage. She also had a pretty tough childhood. Patricia, thanks for joining us on the Good Life podcast today. I loved that cholera line. <laughs> How good was that cholera line? <laughs> right, you've, you've compared me to a disease, but I'm okay, I think. There I got are... it. It's okay, I got good, it. Good, good. All right. Um, so, uh, so let's start at the beginning. Um, you have a, a, a childhood which is, uh, by any measure, rougher than most. Uh, you became an orphan at age eight. Uh, and what happened then? Well, yeah, I, I unexpectedly did become an orphan at the age of eight. And before then, my family life was pretty conventional migrant family. Both my parents were born in Greece, married in Greece, migrants to Melbourne and and pretty you know entrenched in the Greek community working class people hard-working people um, I'm the youngest of three daughters but significantly younger than my sisters I was kind of like the mistake of the family if, if you know what I mean um, which I kind of carry around proudly uh, what a, what a happy little mistake I was as I tell them um, <clears throat> so yeah I mean you know as I say became an orphan at eight and then obviously my otherwise pretty ordinary working class, you know, suburban life where I was kind of pigtails and just really into school, bit of a bit of a nerd with a bit of a tragic interest in pop music. 
became pretty chaotic. Like life overnight became totally chaotic and unconventional. But I suppose the interesting part of all of that, like I don't want to delve into the heavy emotional part of that, but the interesting part of all that is how successfully managed it was, which I always now, you know, think about as an adult with my own children and actually my eldest child is turning eight this year, which I find personally kind of significant that she's now at the age where kind of my own life turned turned in a direction, you know, most, most children's lives don't turn in in suburban Melbourne. But I think about the way I was raised and whether I'm raising my own children with the same kind of values because I think the values I was raised with by a very large... <clears throat> extended family you can if you hear a croaky voice it's because I'm a PM talker I'm an evening broadcaster and we're meeting in the morning uh, so you know I better better swig some water I'm usually just yelling at children at this time <laughs> but um the, the kind of way that I was raised meant that instead of kind of this hard luck story and there's an element of hard luck story I think everyone has a lot of people have lots of difficult obstacles they've had to overcome and resilience they've had to build but I've turned into a really positive part of my life and I think that hasn't been my own decision entirely of course I've been part of it but it's the values I was taught by my grandparents by my sister who my both my sisters but particularly my elder sister who is an incredible leader of our family and is a you know if you can do anything Andrew Lee please award her Women's Weekly Mother of the Year at some point because she's been the mother of so many of us so all of those values and that that consistency in the way that I was raised, despite how unconventional it was, meant that, as my sister often says, and I, I think she beautifully puts it, she'd be a better sort of guest on your podcast, there was no chance that I wasn't going to be successful, happy or, um, or survive what is a difficult experience. That's sort of an extraordinary thing to say of somebody who's just lost both their parents, that the system around the, the, the extended family is so strong that it's able to, to not just step in and kind of do a half-hearted job, but actually to do a really good job in raising a child. Is there something about uh, Greek culture or migrant families that, that, ma- makes that makes that work? Because, you know, it's not the, tr- the traditional story you hear is in these circumstances is that mm-hmm. unless the child finds another strong nuclear family, uh, then their life is doomed. That's right. And I remember actually when I was little trying to get my head around this idea that I was an orphan, like the language, the identity around that, which I've never been comfortable with. I won't lie to you. I've. It is a description of the truth like that that is what an orphan means people uh, people children particularly who have lost both parents but it didn't really describe my lived experience because you know so many people particularly my eldest sister but my grandmother my middle sister then took over like you know if I explain it just how complex it was I had I all of a sudden had many mothers Mm. um, and a lot of father figures as well in my life so you know the thing about it is I used to watch – I remember watching, you know, Annie, of course, is the iconic one, right? But, but you know, there are other, other sort of Hollywood depictions of orphans. Orphans are a kind of fodder really for fiction. They're a thing. Mm. They're really interesting. And the, 
the formulation around becoming an orphan is all always very yeah, very nuclear family and very um, the state plays a particular role too. You know this idea of an orphanage, of course, it's very old-fashioned, but that idea and and then being chosen by a lucky, often you know Anglo-Saxon beautiful um, family with money. Mm. And of course, that never happened. And I often challenged my sister in a p- polite way. Like it wasn't, I wasn't kind of, well, sometimes I was a bit naughty, but mainly I was a good kid about why, why didn't, I've never, no one's ever adopted me. No one's, I was never like, I, was, I had a legal guardian, but I was never, no one was kind of in charge the way you do when you adopt somebody. And she said, why would we do that? Like, you, you're always going to be with us. We're a family. You're never going anywhere. Why would we... What, who would take you? What are you talking about? <laughs> and then I came up with another idea. I remember when I was a child where I said, you know, and I, it actually came out of worrying that my sister was doing too much. You know, she was only 19 when, when I became an orphan and she did too, but she was just a young adult, you know, at uni, then started her own business, like really biting off more than most people can chew. And then dealing probably with her own grief, which, of course, I was too little to kind of get my head around, and then dealing with my absolute codependence because I really pro- projected a lot of my my need for a mother on her. Mm. And and she took that role on, like, you know, effortlessly and, and wanted to, wanted to obviously steer me in the right direction. But, again, that's based on values. So she, we, we, lived, we grew up in a family where the value of the idea of the nuclear family was much more disrupted like when my when I was born my sister understood her role to be to help raise me as well both my sisters played that role my other sister was seven when I was born she played that role too so I I remember actually which I always find interesting watching my own daughters and I love them and they and they have a great relationship but there is a bit of sibling rivalry which exists I've realized in families and when I first started seeing it I just realized I just didn't recognise sibling rivalry because I've never experienced sibling rivalry ever because my, my sister's played this parenting kind of role in my life. And when you're parenting somebody, there is no rivalry. Mm. So I've never, ever experienced inside of a family competition. And so this was completely news to me. I was like, why are they trying to be the best at that? Because in my family, my sisters just wanted me to be the best at everything. Like they, they didn't even compete for the spotlight. It was just the way it was always. And even before my parents died, this isn't just as a consequence of that. It was just the way my family ran because everyone kind of raised me. Uh, I was everyone's, it was everyone's job to do that. So it wasn't this idea that my mother did everything. Um, I'm sure my sister probably sometimes had complaints about that, by the way. It's not always easy on children who are... Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's an extraordinary comment to make that you sort of find sibling rivalry uh, is something something unusual in uh, in our household of three little boys. Uh, there is constant competition, and uh, as an egalitarian, I uh, always find it somewhat ironic that I keep on saying, "Stop comparing yourself to your brothers. Worry about what you've got yourself." Uh, but uh, yes, ours is a household of constant sibling sibling rivalry. And you realise that's about family structure. So you've got three little boys who are all very close in age mm. and I have two little girls with under two years age difference so these these kids are performing as they should right this is developmentally completely normal <laughs> but it's just not my experience yes. so it is yeah it's for me it's hard to get my head around and I often my daughter now actually just completely embraces this because she loves her aunties my my sisters like we're all very close still and I'll often say do you see auntie sue 
ever trying, you know, to whatever, insert example of bad thing that's just happened, which is not even that bad, but is just normal child behaviour. And she says, no, she never does that. And I said, no, she was always trying to lift me. So try and lift your sister. Like, try and help her. Don't try and push her down. She always, but she responds well. I mean, she's nearly eight. She's, she often comes back to me, has a think about it, and says, you're right, I want to help her. I want to help her. And it's all very dramatic. We're very dramatic. It's all very, very important that we help each other. So I just think that's an essential element of family. But you did actually ask one question, which I haven't, I, I, I'm very, I go off on tangents, but you did ask about the kind of role of, ethnicity like in my you know the fact that we're a Greek family I mean that's one of those anecdotal things right I don't know if I was if we're an Anglo-Saxon family if it would be different I can't be sure because I've never come from an Anglo-Saxon family my family is what it is but there is I will say an experience which is I anecdotally again I, I hear from all of my friends from migrant families which is that there is a sense of collectivism which exists when you come to another country and you are essentially outsiders and you do need to rely on that extended network in a pretty big way. So that that was pretty important. So at the time when, when all this happened in my family, my grandparents, for instance, my maternal grandparents, they were sometimes living in Greece, sometimes living in Australia. Um, you know, lots of migrants do that when they get very old. This is after their working life. And... My grandparents made the decision to then permanently live in Australia. I mean, they'd already half lived here, but permanently live in Australia so they could help my sister who was becoming my legal guardian. Mm. So again, part of this collective raising so she could go to work and do all the stuff she needed to do and they could do the things that um, old uh, Greeks do, which is cook a lot and um, kind of tell you to study more, right? And they did that, <laughs> they did that so well, like they did that so well. And so a lot of my experiences are just spending hours and hours and hours with old Greek pensioners, right, indoctrinating me, I've realised now, about their life values, which are now not surprisingly identical to my life values. <laughs> now I wonder how much of that was my own decision or how I was just convinced by them. But, like, the concepts of hard work, opportunity... Um, not giving up, uh, you know, my grandmother, she'd gone, my grandma was illiterate. And so for her education and literacy and, and doing well, like aspiring to, to something, something much higher than she could have imagined was so critical. So there was no, never a night as I translated Sale of the Century to them, which is what I did every single night because um, they couldn't understand much English, but they loved Sale of the Century. So I'd have to actually it translate doesn't. the entire game show, which drove me nuts, but this is what I did. <laughs> um, I got very good at translating it, sometimes a bit complicated, but my grandfather said it was an essential part of my role in the family. And, and every night my grandmother would just go on and on about the importance of you know, education, getting a licence. Again, she couldn't drive. I realised mm. there were projections as well, things she couldn't do. Um, and economic autonomy. And she, that exact framing, that language, but in Greek is what she described mm. it as, economic independence. And till today, like they are essential, that's how I live my life. Are there other aspects of that it takes a village style of parenting that you 
talk about when you're talking about you're talking to friends who are having a child for the first time, you're sort of giving them general advice on child rearing. Do you think there's things, uh, other things that uh, you encourage your friends to uh, to pick up on? Yeah, that's a good point. Look, I try not to tell people how to parent because you know I I I reckon um, I'm I don't think I'm like mother of the year like my sister should be. I'm okay at it. And my kids and I are pretty pretty tight, but you know, I'd always like I'm 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 big on self improvement, Andrew. I don't know about you, but I'm annoyingly into self improvement. So I literally assess myself at the end of the day, and I'm like, could have done that better, should have had that conversation better, did that really well, was very calm about that situation. So I generally don't try and impose my my um, parenting on others, but I do. Yeah, I do think that that kind of approach. I mean. You know, my circumstances were as they were because they had to be. Mm. Like, I don't think everyone needs to be an orphan and then have everyone raise them. Like, I don't think that is... I'm not saying that's the best parenting style. I'm saying it worked for me because it had to. Let's be honest, it just had to. There was no other option. Mm. But I had my first child in Canberra. I'll give you an example of how I realised just how the systems stacked against people doing it on their own because I was working in the press gallery for The Australian at the time and... That's where I had. That's where I had my first child, and you know I had a lot of political friends, like people like you, like staffers and politicians and um, and journalists. But I had no family or extended network around me, none, and it was incredibly difficult, like really difficult. Mm. Like I don't mean to say, you know, I've suffered so greatly. I didn't, but I felt it really very isolating. So one of the reasons we decided to move to Melbourne, and my partner's from Sydney, and that was an option as well, but just getting out of Canberra as much as we loved Canberra I mean I love politics I love Canberra as a city too but was the idea of it takes a village we realized yes we could literally do it yeah we could pay for help and send them to childcare and sort it out but ultimately we just didn't have the village around us and that not just oh I need this pickup at this time but I want my daughters to have a range of role models that for me are happy I'm happy I want to come out of my own family I know for mm. other people they can be friends but for me it was important that they were from my family and my partner's family as their kind of leaders as well so that we're not the only ones that they can go to all these other people these other uncles older cousins my daughters have my my nephew is nearly 19 so my daughters have a kind of cousin that's like an uncle who plays this role in their lives so I thought that that collectivism was really important for me um so that's why we're here to be honest because uh, I'm really motivated by the idea that many people need to be role models not just me yeah I noticed the difference when we uh one of our kids spends a weekend on their own with their grandparents where it's not just childcare, but they come back with new ideas new self-confidence new sports they've just been stretched in a way in which someone who's simply being paid to look after your children doesn't doesn't always uh, stretch them and so it's it's just a it's a delight as a parent to see that relationship between your child and and, and in my case uh, my parents um, what about on the on on the resilience side? I mean, you've spoken about resilience as being a, a sort of core quality that uh, that that you characterise yourself as. Does how much of that comes from that early tragedy, from that sense of well, this is bad, but I have a perspective as to what really bad looks like. Um, how you talk about uh, how uh, how you've shaped your resilience and how you continue to build it? Yeah, resilience. For me, it's a 
I actually think about resilience a lot because I want, obviously, to everyone does, wants to build that in their children. We all want to. But I, I'm not going to come onto this podcast and pretend that... I love the title, by the way. I do want to live the good life. I do want to raise my children with integrity and well with good values. But equally, I don't know how to teach resilience. I haven't nailed mm. that. So if you've got yeah, an answer, that'd be great. Don't, I don't know how to. What I do know, though, I do know I'm resilient. Um, I'm not, I don't mean to sort of sugarcoat my life. And it was lovely. And then we were all collectively, we were all like sang Kumbaya. There were lots of difficult parts of my life. Um, and those difficulties at all those different junctures, because, you know, tragedy doesn't just happen on one day. It then kind of colours the rest of your experiences and, and different paths you take and the way that you approach different things and, and knowing that kind of things don't always work out. <laughs> you know, like not everything's great. Like things tragedy strikes all the time um people don't get i used to wish that people just got uh, i'm such an egalitarian that i wish that everyone got their quota of bad so you know i always used to say my (laughs) sister used to laugh at me i've had my quota of bad so i shouldn't have any more bad in my life and she would say because she's um very smart um just doesn't kind of work like that it should work nice to work like that but it doesn't work like that so in terms of teaching my kids resilience, I've had to teach them that concept, right? That mm. that it's not you don't just kind of get you you given your sort of amount of bad and your amount of good and that's it. Because if you look around the world, I don't mean to sound like too much of a bleeding heart, but if you're a kid in Syria, I don't think you go, well, I've had my quota of bad now. Great stuff's about to happen, right? right? Um, it's it's postcode. Like I I was born into a brilliant country with opportunity. My my family situation, my family was at cornerstone of building me, but they were in a great place in terms of opportunity for that to happen. My grandma knew that though, we knew that. That's why we came here. <laughs> like her whole notion after all of this was great. So you're in Australia, so make sure you equip yourself now. You've got it, you've got it. We're sending you to the free public school down the road. You've got all of this, do it. Mm. It's all there. The, the university, you can get into it. We know you can. All of this was available to me. This was – so I, I, I'm, I feel that sense. So in terms of, you know, teaching the resilience, a lot of it for me is storytelling. So I um, I don't kind of – some people – everyone's got different philosophies with kids. I don't believe in sanitising things for kids. I also don't – I'm not brutal, but I, I think that you need to tell them the truth. So, you know, you do lose. You don't win every race. Yes. Um, bad things can happen to good people. Bad things happen to good people all the time. Um, you can try and change that and you can participate in speaking out against it when you think injustice is happening and even in the schoolyard. My daughter's very empathetic, I find, because we do have these values and I think it's in her as well. She's naturally empathetic. But, you know, knowing that you just not everything will work out for you and how to kind of rebuild after that, how to get kind of get yourself back up every time and it's okay you don't necessarily have to get up straight away is one of the lessons I teach you know it's okay you're actually allowed to feel sorry for yourself sometimes you know everyone says don't feel sorry for yourself no you are just not for very long that's my philosophy but you are allowed to feel it if you don't feel it you're not dealing with it it's okay to feel disappointed or feel like you know you wanted to top the class in in whatever you've done in the maths quiz or whatever and you came second or you came last or I don't know but you you have to actually feel that or that disappointment and then kind of get back up and figure out how you're going to nail it the next time right but 
that's like re- resilience at a very nice middle class level where yeah everything's working well but bad things happen to good people all the time so I just think I see that all the time around me I've seen it in my own life not just as a child but even more recently bad things happen to good people and and it's about how we manage that how we have those conversations as a community mm. uh, on a personal level that we try and turn those bad things into something good not not can never turn something bad into good, but you know what I mean. Like try and make that your trajectory a positive one after something yes. like that. Yeah, I don't, uh, one of the moments I always struggle to find the right words is when someone suffered a loss, uh, a fa- family breakdown, or they've uh, someone they love has died. Um, I still don't feel as though I, I know exactly the right thing to say, but I at least now feel in my 40s that I know the wrong thing to say, which is the kind of, uh, don't worry, it'll be all right, uh, or let me tell you about something worse that someone else someone else suffered. Uh, and if all you can say is, wow, that sucks, uh, then sometimes that's okay. Uh, you, don't have to, you, don't, you don't have to solve the problem there and then. Uh, that is so true. And... Oh, look, you know, people are people are flawed, and we're. I, I find, I, I find even the way I've responded to other people's, as you say, breakdown, whatever problem that they're suffering has not has been inadequate. You know, we all mm. we think. I don't know. I, I, as I say, I'm great at reviewing myself, uh, and I'll often think, oh, why did I say that, or did I? Why did I do that? Or, but it's difficult. It's really difficult to do. Sometimes I actually think, which I've increasingly this is a new thing, sometimes less is more as well. So if I don't think I can be that person or do something well, I'll actually, I'll show compassion and show that I, I care about that person's feeling or, or that it's happening, but I won't insert myself. Like mm. I'll just, I won't, unless someone is asking me to play that role, I just, I won't kind of think that I've got the answers. I find that kind of need to insert yourself into everything sometimes is a bit extreme as well. I just, I can't even articulate. I've had a few examples of this recently where I've just, I've seen somebody, you know, really, really upset and I haven't had the right thing to say. So I've, if in doubt, leave out, as they say in journalism, like don't, don't insert yourself into something that you don't think you can say the right thing because you can't actually connect with what this person's experiencing. I think that's more appropriate sometimes than, sometimes it is very damaging to say the wrong thing. And there is nothing worse, you know, the one that gets me. Oh, this one really gets me. The it was it was meant to be. I hate it was meant to be. Mm. I hate fatalism. No, it's not meant to be. It, it has happened, but that doesn't mean it's meant to be, because that that messes with my sense of justice. Some things are not meant to be, even though mm. they've happened. That one really annoys me. So if anyone says that to me, <laughs> I'm probably going to bite your head off. I have. <laughs> no, it's not meant to be. It wasn't meant to be. There's no good side. It's okay. And also that, you know, I've recently gone through a very big experience of grief and that, are you, oh, how are you feeling? Are you feeling a bit better now? I hate that one too. Mm. Because why would you feel any better? No, I'm getting on with life, of course, getting on with life, but I don't feel better about it. Something yeah. better about it yet. Yeah, I just got back from a uh, trip to Burma with Save the Children and one of the things we did was to go to a Rohingya refugee camp uh, in Sitway, where a bunch of uh, Rohingya Muslims had been moved off their traditional lands, placed in this uh, refugee camp, which essentially sat on sand and you know, kids running around, very little education. And my overwhelming sense was just that, that I didn't feel as though I had 
anything useful to say or to contribute or to offer in in the kind of personal conversations I was having to people there it's just it's just an awful situation that that that, that people are in and you know I can talk till the cows come home on the policy level but for for connecting with the human beings there I was just struck by how I almost felt kind of dumb, unable to say useful things to the adults I was chatting with. Yeah, um, that's right. Well, because what do you say? Yeah, yeah. As you said, this sucks, right? Uh, and uh, now you have a, a couple of interesting things that, uh, that, are, that I want to, uh, to explore about the, the way in which you live your life. You, uh, you walk a lot. Yeah, in fact... Tell me about the walking. Yeah, I will. It's funny that um, in one of these bags that I'm now looking at, I've got two bags, most people carry around one, but that's because my sneakers are in that bag and that's because right till I made it right here, I had them on. And then what I do is I hide, whip them off and then put normal shoes on, hoping that no one's seen me in the sneakers because I wear normal clothes and the sneakers. So that's, uh, uh, you know, like a total fashion fail. So, you know, like a, I'm aware of this. This is... <laughs> And I live in Melbourne, and my sisters are fashionistas. Like I, you know, I, they just they just look at me in despair all the time. But this is the way I've rolled for a good twenty years now. So yeah, walking is my thing. Um, I am a big on the more I can walk, the happier I am. Like I've actually tracked it. My partner always says it. Like if the more kilometres or minutes or it doesn't matter, it's not for me about timing myself mm. and getting the right app to see how far I've gone. I couldn't care less. But for me, it's just I love I love destinational walking. So, and there's no place too far for me. So, and right. often that's been embarrassing. Where I've said, "All oh, right, that's in Oakley. Like I'll walk there." And a friend said, "Yeah, no, people go on freeways to get there." And I go, "Yeah, that's fine. I'll just meet you there in an hour." Like that kind of thing. Because um, I hate gyms. I hate like organised exercise. Mm. I hate that sort of environment where I see other people exercising around me. I don't know why. Psychoanalyze me, but it like makes me deeply uncomfortable. I just don't enjoy it as a space. And I also don't enjoy high impact exercise. Like I don't want to feel like crazy assaulted physically. I I, I don't like that feeling. I just I don't want to experience that. So I'd rather walk for two hours. Yeah. I'd rather I'd rather and my partner said to me, you know you could exercise for twenty minutes doing this and get the same that you do in your two hour walk. And I say, Yeah. No thanks. Like so yeah, walking is a big thing. The 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 big problem for me has been, um not problem I mean, you know, I'm making sound really negative, but an obstacle for me has been having children has really changed the way i've had to approach this yes you can't go for walks with your partner any longer no that's gone uh and also just with the drop-offs and getting to work and Mm. i've got two jobs and it's incredibly hard like to fit that all in but i realized that you actually can though it's just much more complicated and involves much more planning and much more discipline so i still do but it does it's, it's a bit more complicated than it used to be which was just you know always I've always walked to work and home like historically but now I can't so often you know we'll walk for for an hour in the morning then get the car to you know drop off the girls then come back you know like just boring detail for you but I I've had to build into my day stuff that you know is not not what I'd like but something really exciting has happened which I'd like to reveal to you on your podcast which is very exciting in a good life kind of way but not in a you're going to put it on the front page of a newspaper ever but my seven and a half year old has become resilient like physically enough 
to go on some of my walks. Fantastic. Yeah. So this is I've, – I've been waiting for this, by the way. This is not like oh, it just happened. I've been waiting, but I didn't know it would happen this early and it happened over this summer break. So I've always liked going on these walks and she's – you know, you, kids build it up, don't they? So I've noticed she could go for a 10, then a 20-minute walk and that was good and that was better and she never asked to be held or said she was tired. And then she could all of a sudden – she can stretch to like – I don't think she can really go past an hour without a significant kind of mum, I'm tired. But she can do high-level, my kind of walking for an hour now. And it's, it's liberated me because it means that I just take her. My partner has the other kids. She's far too little and anywhere walk. You know, that's her thing. She's only five. But it's great for our relationship. So I'm loving – I love walking. So this is like it's great for me. But what do you do when you walk? You just talk, right? Yes. So the conversations have reached another level. The things she tells me and I tell her are much more interesting than when we're kind of stuck inside, everyone gets frustrated, everyone's pressing each other's buttons. So this is one of the best things that's happened to me. So I'm actually at my peak happiness with walking now. <laughs> Do you have a favourite walk in Melbourne? Oh, no, part of that's what I mean. My walking is kind of almost, you know, kind of a bit odd. It's – there is – I walk like, as I say, because it's so destinational, I'll walk anywhere so a right. friend will invite me. So just me. along the Calder Freeway is kind yeah, of... Yeah, 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 yeah. But okay. that's... So my partner, it's funny you say that, hates that, right? Like it's... Hates Hates is such a strong word. It's, that's the ethnic in me, always exaggerating everything. Um, <laughs> but thinks it's weird. Like, okay. Like, so she says, let's take... Can we take a scenic walk? Like, you know, the Yarrow Trails or the blah, blah, blah. Mm. And I say, oh, no, I don't care. I don't care if there are trucks zooming past me. Like, for me, it's like the walk. Walking through actually places which are made for cars is actually very tricky because sometimes it's also very dangerous because, you know, this is like a narrow footpath and then you feel like you're going to get run over. But that's part of it for me. Like, I see myself as a vehicle. Do you get it? Like, mm. that's I'm a car. So I'm – and I'm almost as fast as a car. Like, I walk quite fast. So <laughs> I'm getting places – and not worrying about parking. Like, it's fantastic. So, yeah, my, my – I mean, I, I, I make it out like I don't like any scenic walks. I'm not that bad. I'm not completely anti kind of the environment. There's obviously prettier walks than ones where you're going to get run down by a really large truck. But it's not about what I see around me. It's actually about the process. So let me ask you a couple of uh, standard questions I ask all of, uh, all of my guests. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, this is a good one. Very good question. Um, probably not to worry so much. Yeah. I mean, I think part of all this sort of story I've told you about myself and I was extremely ambitious, I, I really – but I also worried about all of that a lot. No, really, like, you know, I, I, I worked really hard but I also kind of think I built things up that I probably didn't need to. So if I could – find myself at 15, I would probably tell myself that uh, – still to work just as hard, by the way. Never never would I tell myself to have altered that on any level because I worked extremely hard and really took, you know, things like homework very seriously. And all my cool friends would be like, well, did you really do that? I didn't care. I wasn't embarrassed about admitting that. Like uh, working hard is, uh, for me, really fulfilling. Like I don't, I'm not embarrassed. I wasn't always trying to be cool. But I would tell myself not to add to that hard work – this sense of impending doom and catastrophizing that if it if I didn't get a plus 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 exaggeration but you know what I mean mm. that the world would would actually end 
that the, that everything would stop if that didn't happen. I would tell myself that that it's okay if it if if that wasn't achieved. That's fine. I can still be okay. Did Johnny Johnny Young's talent team uh, <laughs> instill that uh, that 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 sense of uh, of things being important? That's or? very funny. Um, I only did that for like a term or two, mainly because it was expensive. And you know, as I say, it was I think my my. I did go to the Johnny Young Talent School. My sisters enrolled me into that because I loved singing and dancing. Like I love performing. I still do. Like I just it was my favourite thing to do. I still love dancing. It's probably one of my favourite things to do. But um, what that did instill, and I've actually recently sent my kids to dancing and singing school, not Johnny Young Talent School anymore, but you know the equivalent. I'm not going to name it, but she's just gone and done a you know intensive. Is confidence. So what it taught me was confidence. Confidence. Mm is not being afraid of people looking at you, not being afraid of what people think of you, not being afraid of people judging you, or knowing they might judge you, but not worrying about the consequences of that. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Actually, probably very similar to something I've already said in the podcast, so I won't delve too much, but the idea I did really believe really strongly because I had such a strong sense of justice. and I was raised pretty Christian family, like raised very strongly in this idea of fairness, that that fairness always prevails. So I used to believe that, as I say, had my dose of tragedy, friends of mine who've also, lots of people have tragic lives, as I say, a lot of people you don't know it, very happy, successful people don't tell you. But I, I often try and find out the real stories behind people too. So this is a good project you're working on. But I, I've got friends who I know have gone through horrendous experiences, you know, um, not expecting that that means it's the end. That's really important. I've, mm. That's been actually honestly something that I've had f- found very difficult to get my head around, but that some people just have more to deal with than others and that there's no reason and you, well, you can try and find it. People find it through religion. People find it through try and find the answers for that. And then other people live such charmed lives, right? Uh, not to good on them but such charmed lives i had a friend recently told me she'd literally had nobody in her life die in in her life yet exactly the same age as me no one nothing bad in like what i mean significantly bad other than oh you know disappointed at work one day but i mean significantly Mm. bad it happened now great she's a lovely person she's very empathetic there's nothing but what a charmed life so far you know but that and other people just have you know series after series of so that is something that i've really i used to really believe a sense of justice that that things Mm. even out at the end this even out concept i Mm. had but they Mm. don't when are you most happy uh again i'm replicating ideas here but yeah um walking 100 percent, 100 percent. and i feel like i might be replicating questions that's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy Sounds like it's the... No, uh, walking is definitely for health. But no, I can I can deviate from the walking because I sound like I'm too obsessed with that now and I want people to think I'm completely mm-hmm. mad about it because I do do other things. The thing I do to stay mentally is spend a lot of time with my kids. That actually, you know, having kids is... is let's not pretend we don't have our, have kids for our own reasons or our own needs. So I... I, I don't like I don't like to some people like going on holidays without their kids or doing things without their kids anytime I don't spend at work or trying to walk or do some of the things that are good for me because that's important I really find that I'm better 
if I spend a lot of quality time with my kids. So if I find I'm particularly busy or I have to do extra work trips or something, which I do because I'm kind of committed to my career and my, my public stuff I do, I do feel – I feel it emotionally straight away. So I yes. don't feel like I'm as balanced or as as happy as yeah. I can be. So that my relationship with my kids is probably key. I'm not m- mentally the same if I haven't invested in them. I know what you mean. Yeah, it's interesting. I think of, you know, my eldest is only nine, but I just, I can't imagine the me that isn't connected to these little people. Do you have any guilty pleasures? I sound so, I was actually, you did give me a heads up of this one, let's be honest here. And I thought I'm going to sound so vanilla and um, I, I barely actually have anything that I do that's like a, guilty pleasure i have a caffeine addiction that's kind of my kids say that's a bit bad my other big addiction they're all food based i don't smoke or drink too much or do anything like that i do believe in like looking after your body and trying to have a physically healthy life or i think that that's often triggers other awful things to happen to you emotionally but probably um i i've read too much health advice on the the negative um, consequences of red meat and I have a red meat problem right like like, seriously like I eat more red meat than I think most um, people should or do I have a problem with lamb no one eats as much lamb as I do I'm sure like (laughs) I and I'm trying to actively reduce the amount of lamb I eat but I'm finding it very hard um, so it's a guilty pleasure, but it's 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 so it's like an entrenched in my life. So I don't know how guilty it is because everyone sees it or, or quiet it is. And the other one is: Have you had tara masalata? I think so. It's that pink dip, caviar yeah, dip. Yeah. Okay. That's like a. I have. I can't be near that dip. <laughs> I can't. I can't be in a proximity to that dip. So that dip can't be brought into the house. Recently was. I'm telling you this story because it was recently brought into the house. Well, my partner was trying to be nice and bought a really good version of it from a Greek deli. And it was literally like um, snorted, inhaled <laughs> before anyone got access to it. And I said, this is actually a problem. This can't be brought into the house because I can't. You know when you there is some – is there anything like that for you? Any food kind of thing that you f- struggle with self-control around? No, I don't have food. coffee more than food. Mm. Yeah, that that is my thing. Yeah, and um, probably listening to too much George Michael and pop music, but that's that's not so guilty. I think that's very good for the soul. I think so too. And finally, what um, person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Probably, and I'll put them both in it. Like, you know, it's almost my sisters because. You know, my eldest sister, my middle sister, played a really key role raising me, particularly at the end of high school. So as I say, they all shared it. She she sort of took over at the end of year 11 and 12 and really steered me through the end of high school and then, you know, got me, not got, I mean, I got myself into university, but, you know, helped, that made that path Mm. for me, helped me with that path. But my eldest sister, who I think is like the universal mother, lives just such an ethical life, like such a good life. She just... She, but but not in that kind of martyr. I, I don't I don't aspire or don't believe in martyrdom. She doesn't work like that. She she knows her limits. She understands her boundaries. She articulates her boundaries to you. So right now, to give you an example, so you know at nineteen she started raising me. Then she 
uh, and did that till I was an adult and then still till today I will call her and ask her to help raise me still when I need mothering which is almost every day (laughs) and then she had her own children and has done a brilliant job with them you can't get better kids and till today like right now if I tell you this you you will be like wow so she will now take pick my kids up from the babysitter and have them for the entire afternoon my kids Ah. so I talk to you and then I go do my radio show so that is an ethical life. She will do that while running a small business, um, being being everything for her own kids, looking after herself, as I say, going on her own walks and all the things she needs. Like her whole life is about providing everything everyone needs around her but also looking after herself. So I, I, she's my role model. She knows that. Like she knows that. She's like, you know, it's an in-joke in our family, like get a grip. Um, but I don't quite think I've nailed that level of looking after everyone around me I mean, you know sometimes we all have selfish tendencies but I mm. I've got youngest child syndrome as she says like I have that kind of oh me 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 oh yeah 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 there's other people in the room all oh, right of course <laughs> I'm not the only person here but that that I think that role models that are close like not not you know I could give you someone really famous who's changed the world you know could talk about you know Gandhi and Mandela but I think sometimes it's the kind of mini heroes the people in your direct life who you've seen just get on with it and not whine i've never heard my sister complain she just just gets on with it patricia cavellis thanks for taking the time to speak on the good life podcast today hey thanks for having me thanks for listening to the good life podcast if you like this episode please take a moment to let your friends know on facebook twitter or your favorite social media app next week i'll be back to talk with rob de castella about marathoning, coaching and pain.